You know, since we are a TV-driven world, or an image-driven world, maybe not just TV now, but the Internet, everything else, billboards, billboards, we tend to, we tend to, information-wise, we want to see something that represents that information, especially people's identity. So like when we think of someone, oh, I think of someone in the, Moses or Elijah, what would they look like? Well, often we've seen a movie that will affect our thinking of what they look like. Take Jesus, for instance. I remember as a young Christian, I was, went to a Billy Graham crusade, early 80s down in Reno, and then did the paperwork and all that, whatever it was, you know, to be a volunteer. And I got on their mailing list, and they sent me a poster of Jesus. It was about this big. And Jesus was about 6'2", dishwater blonde hair. He could have been from northern Europe. And I didn't even think about it. Of course that's what Jesus looks like. And it wasn't until years later I realized that Jesus being Semitic, probably olive skin, much shorter probably. Um, but we, yet we want to make everyone in our image. Isn't that right? So it's one of those things we have. We don't do it on purpose. It happens. The Apostle Paul, have you ever thought about what he looks like? Do you have an image of your head, Apostle Paul? Because of movies, I do. But it's funny, who was this man, Paul? An early second century document called Paul and Thecla. This is about 100 years after Paul. And it was a fictitious writing about the life of Apostle Paul. And they put a description in there of him. And that has stuck ever since what Paul looked like. We don't know if it's real, but listen to this description. Paul was a man of middling size. His hair was scanty. His legs were a little crooked. His knees were far apart. He had large eyes and his eyebrows met. And his nose was somewhat long. So this, is this made up or is this history that remembers what Paul looks like? Doesn't matter. This is what's stuck, what Paul looks like. We have no clue. But in 2 Corinthians, Paul quotes his critics as Paul's having to defend his apostleship in 2 Corinthians, his critics would say his letters are weighty and forceful, but in person, he is unimpressive. So what I want to do today is look at Paul's passion for Jesus and for Jesus' church. We're going to look at the last paragraph of Colossians, chapter 1. And he, he brings some profound truths to us. But I want us to look at those truths in light of who Paul is and what his heart yearns for. And what Paul's heart yearns for is we're going to start in Philippians. Paul's heart yearns for knowing Jesus Christ deeply. And with knowing Christ deeply comes a deep love for Christ's people, the church. And then we'll ask ourselves the question, where am I at on that pursuit of Jesus that Paul had and a commitment to the people of Jesus? So that's what we're going to do today. So let's look at Paul's words about who he is before Jesus. In the book of Philippians chapter 3, we're going to look at from chapter 3, start in verse 2 and go all the way to verse 14, I think it is, maybe 17. I can't remember what I did. And to look at Paul's testimony of who he was before Jesus, then he meets Jesus and how his heart changes. And also, we're going to be in Philippians, then we're going to go to Colossians chapter 1. So if you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. The ushers will bring you a Bible. If you don't own a Bible, keep it. 
Listen to Philippians 2, how Paul describes himself. And um, I had to start, as always, with Paul in the middle of a sentence, or middle of a paragraph. Paul says this in chapter 3, verse 2 of Philippians. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. Who he's talking about here is Jewish people who are following Paul that claim to that proclaim Christ, but they also proclaim, if you want to be a Christian, you first must be circumcised and become Jewish. So remember, Paul is Jewish. He's not picking on Jewish people. He's picking on pe Jewish people who are following him, distorting the teaching of Jesus. So, and he calls them mutilators of the flesh because they were saying, oh, if you want to be a good Christian, you have to be circumcised. So, watch out for those dogs. Paul says, for it is we who are the circumcision, that is Christians, whether Jew or Gentile, we who serve God by the Spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for such confidence. Now here's Paul's description of himself before Christ. If someone else think they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised the eighth day, which is what a faithful Jewish family did. Circumcised their boy the eighth day of his life. Of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, and Benjamin was known to be a fierce tribe, um, of, of, and Paul became a fierce person, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness, based on the law, faultless. Now, look at the Ten Commandments in your life. Could you say you are faultless? No, Paul had a very high view of himself as a follower of the law of Moses. High confidence, incredible zeal, so much zeal that he decided to persecute the church of Jesus Christ because he saw them as a dishonor to God. But Paul had a view of himself that was, if you took a tape measure and measured Paul, metaphorically speaking, he would say, I'm the perfect specimen, specimen of a Jewish man. That's who I am. That's his view of himself before Christ. Because of his hatred of Christians, because they're proclaiming Jesus as the Messiah, when Paul doesn't believe Jesus is the, way to, the, the long coming Messiah and believes Christians are actually dishonoring God, he persecutes them. He beats them, puts them in prison, and he gets a letter from the high priest in Jerusalem to go to Damascus, which is um, multiple days ride north of Jerusalem, to arrest Christians and put them in jail. And he's with a, a cohort of people. They're on horses. And he's going to Damascus. As, he, as he's close to Damascus, Jesus appears to Paul. Not in a vision. In reality. The resurrected Christ comes and appears to Paul and blows him away. Knocks him off his horse. And blinds him for three days. But he says, Saul, Saul, can remember Jesus. Paul's Hebrew name is Saul. He, once he became a Christian, he went by his Greek name, Paul. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? You see, Jesus saw Paul's persecution of his followers as a personal persecution of himself. That's what Jesus thinks of his church. Why are you persecuting me? Blinded for three days, time to contemplate. At that point, his... His eyes are opened, metaphorically, and literally the scales fall from his eyes after a man named Ananias prays for him. And Paul comes to 
of full faith in Jesus Christ, and his entire world changes. It utterly changes from going that way to that way. His whole worldview shifted, and his passion shifted for a passion for keeping the law of Moses to a passion to know Jesus Christ. And so that's the next section, Paul's passion and commitment to know Jesus. And by the way, when I talk about knowing God or knowing Jesus, I'm talking about a relationship, not simply information. You have to have information for relationship, correct? But the purpose of the information is to grow close to somebody. Paul's passion and commitment to know Jesus. So in Philippians, it goes on. But whatever regains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. All those things, all that list of my pedigrees in Judaism, loss. But I've gained Jesus. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For whose sake I have lost all things, I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. So think of your past. If it was, if it was contrary to following Jesus, would today you consider it garbage? And remember, Paul, Paul is the upper echelon of Judaism. He'd arrived. And so, you know, he was the one percenter of Judaism. He says, garbage, because I know Jesus now. So he says there, I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Now verse 10, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. That is an unbelievably powerful expression that we need to think about if we want to know who this Apostle Paul is that's writing the book of Colossians. Paul has turned his back on his pedigree in the religious leadership of Judaism because he can't have that and follow Jesus too. So his passion to know Jesus, but this is how he defines it, to know the power of his resurrection. How many of you want to know that power? I'll assume every hand is up. To know the power of his resurrection, that, that not, not just the miraculous power that does miracles today. I think Paul's going way deeper than that. He's going to the power to live above your sins. The power that delivered you from your sins and empowers you not to give in to the temptations. Now that is power, as you all know. And participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. So Paul knows to follow Jesus is to experience the power, and it's actually very evident in Paul's life and ministry, and to suffer with him. And what I believe about the American church, in which I'm part of, I think we've, we've, we've done well on wanting the power of the resurrection. I think we have a very underdeveloped theology of suffering. And the reason God allows and even brings suffering into our lives to make us like Christ. So I think we need to think much harder about the role of suffering in our lives. Um, 
but, but that's another message. And so, verse 11, so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. And Paul says, not that I've already obtained all this or I've already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. This is one of my favorite verses in Scripture. I press on, and that word press on in Greek is the Greek word dioko. And it can be used for a, a, a positive things of, of pursuing something good. It also has a negative context of pursuing someone to persecute them. So I want you to take that passion negatively. If you think of someone, Paul's passion to persecute, okay, because the word can be translated, I persecute, not just press on. Paul persecuted Christians. He's now taken the passion and zeal of pursuing enemies, what he believed were enemies of God, and he's turned that around and said, now I'm taking that same passion, I am pursuing Jesus. The way he says it, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. So I ask you, what reason did Jesus take hold of Paul? And he also took hold of you for the same reason. What is it? What was Jesus' end goal for Paul? What is Jesus' end goal for you and me? Salvation, but let's be more specific. Okay, so, so as far as the mission goes, spread the word of God. And Paul had a unique calling for the apostle to the Gentiles. I would suggest to you, all those are true, but I would suggest to you, he already talked about it early in Colossians 1, to be presented holy and blameless before him on that day. That's why Jesus grabbed hold of Paul to redeem him from his sins and his wayward, his zeal that was wayward and turn it around and make it for something godly and good, which in the end makes Paul holy and blameless. <laughs> Same with you and me. That's why Jesus grabbed a hold of us to save us but that salvation is ultimately defined as I stand before him holy and blameless. And that is Paul's passion for himself. And as we're going to learn in Colossians, his passion for those he leads to the Lord. And now 2,000 years later, for so-and-so led so-and-so, said lo-and-so, here we are as a direct result of Paul's ministries with the same goal. I'm going to finish up verse 13 and 14. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, was I haven't arrived yet at what Christ has grabbed me for. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind, all my Jewish pedigree, I forget what's behind, and straining forward what is ahead. The word straining forward is the idea of reaching, just reaching as far as I can reach. Straining forward to what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which Christ has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. At the end of, Christ, at the end of Paul's life, I read it last week, Paul says this, he's going to be murdered by Nero, he's going to be beheaded, he's in prison, and he says, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Now there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness that everybody who loves Jesus coming will receive. So that's the goal Paul is pursuing, that righteousness. So with that, that's Paul's passion for the first Jesus. Now I want to talk about Colossians 1, Paul's passion for and commitment to Christ's church. And let me give you a premise. Think about this. If you love Jesus, you will love his church. Okay, I want you to think about that. And I talk about his church, I'm not talking about the address 300 Country Club Drive. I love this building. But this isn't Jesus' church. This is a building the church meets in. This 
is the church of Jesus Christ. A very small portion of it that meets at this address. Paul, in his passion for Jesus, to know Jesus, that automatically went to a passion to see Jesus' people grow to be like Jesus. God has grabbed a hold of each one of us to turn us into the likeness of his son. That is Paul's passion, and that should be ours. So that's my premise. So I've broken this paragraph down. We're in Colossians chapter 1, 24 to 29. The three sections, I've broken it down. First, Paul's suffering for the church. Listen to Colossians 124. This is verse has perplexed me forever. So you with me? Colossians 124. Now I rejoice in my suffering for your sake. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, that is the church. The first part I have no problem with. I rejoice in my suffering for your sake. Paul suffered greatly, we're going to see that in a minute, suffered greatly for the church. Because he was called to be the apostle to the Gentiles, his life radically changed for, some would say, for the worse. He lost everything. And we're going to read a description of all the suffering he went through in a minute. But he says, I rejoice in that. So I, I, I get that. I get that. The next phrase is, what, I, what are you talking about, Paul? And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, that is the church. What's lacking in Christ's affliction? It's always thrown me off. I've given a lot of thought to it this week, and I have a thought, an explanation that doesn't take away all my uncertainties. But here's what I know from Scripture. Here's what I know from Paul's writings. There's no way Paul believes Christ's sacrifice on the cross is deficient. No way. In fact, the whole book of Colossians is about the superiority, the supremacy, and sufficiency of Jesus Christ. His death is sufficient to save us. Then what's Paul saying is lacking? And this is where we need to develop a better theology of suffering. Because um, in some way, Paul's suffering, and by extension our suffering in life, benefits each other. Paul specifically is talking about persecution here. Um, and that is he, he, by the way, Paul's in prison when he's writing this. He's in prison. And his heart is for the Colossians, not himself. So Paul's in suffering in life in some way moves other believers forward. And if I could, I didn't get your permission to do this, Frank, but I'm going to use you. Frank, to my knowledge, is not being persecuted. But Frank has suffered a lot, and so has Wendy being his wife with his stroke. But I've grown as a person and as a pastor watching these two suffer. First Corinthians or Second Corinthians chapter one says that when Frank suffers, God comforts him. When Wendy suffers, God comforts them. And then how do they use that comfort? They comfort someone else who's suffering. That's actually their prayer. God, use us to help somebody else. Um, so, so God, I'm not saying God caused, caused Frank's stroke. I'm saying God uses Frank's stroke and Wendy's loving nursing ability to strengthen me and my faith. Could I go through this? Is God's grace really sufficient for me to deal with something like this? Well, it is in their life. 
they've struggled with it, but they do their testimony. So that's the principle here from 2 Corinthians. Somehow Paul's suffering moved people towards Jesus. I want to read to you a longer passage in 2 Corinthians 11. After Paul talks about the role of suffering in chapter 1 of 2 Corinthians, he then lists his own suffering. And he does it in the context of there are false apostles coming into Corinth saying, Paul's not a real apostle. Don't listen to them, him. Listen to us. And so Paul has to defend his apostleship and he compares himself to them. In one area, he compares himself as an apostle to them. Because here's some, um, let me see if I, can, if I passed it. Here's Paul's words. Here's Jesus' words when Paul got saved. Paul persecuted the church, right? You know that. Relentlessly. Then Paul is sitting there blind for three days, and God knocks on the door of a man named Ananias. Ananias was a Christian living in the same town Paul was in, that he was blind and waiting to, what, what do you have for me, God? And, but God says, Ananias, I want you to go over to the house on the street called Straight, and I want you to go talk to Paul. And Ananias goes, whoa, I'm not talking to Paul. He's trying to kill us. And God says, go. Here's what Jesus says. Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and to their kings and to the people of Israel. And I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Do you want that calling? But Paul says, I, I want to know Jesus and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. It's a calling Paul had. From day one, Jesus wanted Paul to know, you're going to suffer for me. So listen to the list of Paul's sufferings as he's defending his apostleship. If you're a real apostle, did this happen to you? Is the point he's making. Are they Hebrews? These false apostles. So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. And I'm talking like a madman, he says. Because he says he hates defending himself. But I'm talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. You see, part of the law of Moses is when a person was beaten with a whip, they couldn't go more than 40. So they would count to 39 and stop. So they didn't miscount and go over 40. So how many times? Five times he's beaten with a whip, 40 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. So think of this. Ananias, go tell him how much he's going to suffer for my namesake. And there's Paul's suffering. And apart from these other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Paul's so concerned they, they lost their faith. They walked away. Who is weak and I'm not weak? Who was made to fall and I'm not indignant? It goes on, but I'll stop there. So Paul suffers for Christ's church and in some way 
not that he makes up for what's lacking in Christ's redemptive suffering. But part of Christ's ministry is that we are in each other's lives ministering to each other. And the hardships you go through help others. And the hardships I go through helps you. And so that's part of the body of Christ. There's this intermingling of everyone who follows Jesus, who calls Jesus their Lord and Savior, that we belong in a family. And family rejoices with each other, and family cries with each other. I think that's what Paul's talking about there. Let's move on to the next few verses. Paul's message for the church. Verse 24 through 27. It's really 25 to 27. I'm going to read 24 again because I don't want to start in the middle of the sentence. We just read, now I rejoice in my suffering for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, that is the church. Now 25, of which, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The word stewardship there is, is the word oikonomia, and it refers to... Um, um, it's usually used in a household where someone is put in charge of a household, all the tasks of the household. That's a stewardship. And so, so Paul is saying, I had a stewardship where I'm put in charge of some tasks. And that task was for you to make the, God, make the word of God fully known to you. I'm here to preach to you, teach you. And what is the word of God? Verse 26, the mystery hidden for ages and generations but now revealed to his saints. Ephesians chapter 2 and 3 tells us these saints are the apostles and prophets, that God revealed this next concept. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. Look at that. Which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So, for me, this whole Colossians series... If there's something you walk away with is an understanding at whatever level you want to put your mind to that Christ is in you, and that is the hope of glory. And what's so important about this is not simply that Christ is with you. He's in you, and he's with you as you suffer through life. Paul's concept of Christ in you is restorative and transformative. You see, he's talking to the Gentiles who are not part of the people of Israel, separated from the promises, alienated as we learned a couple weeks ago, without God and without hope, Ephesians 2 tells us. But now we've become part of the family of God. And it's simply not we were invited to the party to serve other people. It's not just as you're hanging around with God's kids. We are fully adopted as children of God. Full heirs along with everyone else in history that's ever believed Jew and Gentile. The Savior is not just with you, but he is in you. And that is an absolute game changer for your identity, a game changer for your character, and a game changer for your behavior. I really believe those things are related. Your identity. Who are you at your core? Are you fundamentally simply a sinner that has been forgiven and the rest of your life you'll struggle with your sin? Or have you been fundamentally changed from the inside, born again, made new, empowered by the Spirit of God that changes your character? And that character is the character of Christ because he's in you. I say this every week in Colossians, and I'm going to say it every week until we finish the series in January. So I've mapped it out. It'll be January by the time we're done. We'll take a little break for Christmas.
So your identity then affects your character, and your character then affects how you live your life each day. Christ in you is the idea of Jesus Christ who truly in some incredible way dwells in you has changed your identity, worked on your character to make it like his, so you live a different life with your family, with your neighbor, with your coworkers, and when you're alone. Because I think we'd all agree, wh who I am, how I act when I'm alone, says a lot about me. It's like a brand new operating system given to you, you computer geeks, I mean people. We were talking this morning in our pre-service prayer time. Some of us just are incompetent when it comes to computers. But we understand operating systems. Operating systems control everything. But I want you to think of the matrix. Remember the matrix? And you have it, all humans are connected to a machine. They, they're living this life they don't even know they're living. They're actually sitting in a chair. And we have Theo who is the, um, is it Theo's name or Neo? Neo, thank you. Neo, who's the star of the movie, Keanu Reeves. And he's working with um, Lawrence Fishbane. What's his name? Fishburne. Fishburne. Sorry. What's the name in the movie? Morpheus. Thank you very much. And I remember one time, one of the scenes, this is a long time, this is 20 years ago. He, he, he radios Morpheus and says, hey, download a certain program into me. So where, you know, because he's really just a, sitting in a machine hooked up to wires. And they download a certain program into him. I don't know if he could do karate or speak a certain language. I can't remember what it was. But there was, this, there was this download of an operating system where he became an expert immediately. That's not the Christian life. I wish it was. But there has been a fundamental shift in who I am, according to multiple passages, Paul and beyond, that has changed my heart. Now I'm told to renew my mind. So the old operating system called the flesh that which is selfish and loves sin, it's still part of me, but it's not my core identity. Christ in me is my core identity. Now I must renew my mind and depend on that new operating system and not the old one. And to learn that, that I have a new identity with a new purpose and a new power. And every day I have to live within that identity, purpose, and power that is becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. I wish for the matrix thing, but it's not going to happen. This is where we talked about before, last week. It's God working in you, is it not? Who gets the glory for your growth in Christ? Do you? Who gets the glory? But are you passive? No, this, this is a very active faith. I put my hands to the plow, but it's God who empowers me. And moves me forward. He gets the glory. But we're not passive. We're very active. So let's look now at the next few verses and finish up this sermon. Paul's goal for the church. Colossians 1, 28 and 29. This mystery that, that the apostles and prophets made known. Him, Christ, we proclaim. Warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. Let me read it to you then I'm going to come back that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. So Paul took all his energy before he met Jesus to persecute the church. Now it's shifted. 
And now all his energy, that who works within him? Is God doing it through Paul? He takes all of that to see the people he brought to the Lord grow to maturity in the Lord. And so that someday, however we image that, that day when we stand before Christ, Paul can say, Philippians, Colossians, come here. Jesus, these are your people. I want to present them to you. And holy and blameless before Jesus. Paul didn't accomplish it. Christ did. But Paul was Jesus' instrument to bring it about every day of those people's lives. It happens progressively. This complete in Christ. By the way, the word complete is the New American Standard, which is in my head. That's my memorized verse. The ESV says mature. Another translation is perfect. This word here is the same word in Matthew 5.48, after Jesus finishes up that portion of the Sermon on the Mount, when he's comparing biblical truth to the self-righteousness of the Pharisees. He says to him. in fact, he says early on, he says this, he says, if your righteousness does not exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees, you're not in the kingdom of heaven. If I, if I make a man's righteousness my standard, I fail. Jesus is saying, don't make the Pharisees your standard. At the end of that teaching, he says this in Matthew 5, 48. Be ye perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. I quote it in King James because it means more. I didn't know I did that. Be ye perfect. <laughs> the word mature, complete. What God called you to be. God is our standard. Not Pharisees, not my, your pastor, not Ron, especially not Ron. I'm getting too serious here, Ron, so I had to throw you under the bus. This happens progressively. It happens in this life, not simply the next. I believe, I believe it's finished when I stand before him and, and this body is resurrected and I'm no longer struggling with my sin and my flesh. But it's a progressive thing that happens in this life. And it's for Paul, it is a great struggle in his own life for it to happen. He says, I press on to grab hold of that. I struggle with it. And then I struggle with helping you do the same. And the struggle is because of the flesh. That part of us, the Bible calls the flesh, Paul calls it that. I call it a remnant of who I was in Adam. So I'm in Christ now. And Christ is being formed in me. But there's still part of me that's stuck with the old person, who I was in Adam. And the whole purpose of life is to not live that way, but to renew my mind, my commitments, and my passions to turn to Jesus. So I want to end this with Galatians 4.19. This is my favorite passage on this. I say it all the time. It really, this passage drives my ministry. My little children, so the Galatians had fallen away from grace. They had decided they're going to go back to keeping the law. These Judaizers that were going around trying to tell, oh, you've got to become Jewish first. They bought into it. And Paul is saying, what have you done? You've fallen from the grace of God. So here's Paul's admonition or his, his heartfelt statement. Galatians 4.19, my little children for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth. Ladies, you know what that's like. For whom again I'm in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I can't say that I have the same commitment and passion as Paul, but this verse drives my ministry. I think this explains Colossians, so I present every man complete in Christ. And that... It's what I labor for every day with the power of God. But it's not just Paul. I think Paul had a, a special commission. 
No one else in Scripture is called. Jesus says, I am appointing you to be the apostle to the Gentiles. No one else had that. But we all are commissioned by Christ to take the gospel to the world. All of us. And not just to preach and evangelize, but to make disciples, to help people grow, to help the person on your right, your left, in front, behind you, to grow, to become like Christ. We are his instruments, the body of Christ. And I pray for a greater passion for it. And I better be careful saying this, that I pray for it, but I need to pray for even the anguish of what it's like to give a birth, which I've never experienced. I have had kidney stones. But the anguish of childbirth, which you ladies know well and men have watched, that pain that I spend my life seeing you become like Christ. And that's just not a calling for a pastor. I believe every person in the body of Christ is called to that end. And you've all been gifted to serve someone else to that end. So as Paul talks about in Ephesians 4, so that the whole body working together, every joint and ligament is doing its parts to grow the body in love. That's what we're called to. Then we become an amazing instrument in the hand of Jesus Christ to reach this world. So, I'd like to finish there for now. Pick up next verse next week. But the worship team's going to come up, and Elena's going to sing, the team's going to sing a new song for you that talks about the idea of surrendering. It talks about everything Christ has done for you, this song does. And and it talks about surrendering to him. Now we have this balance between it's God's work, but I put my hand to the plow and I'm an instrument in his hand and I do the work that he works through me. But I wonder if first we need to stop and realize who we are, what Christ has done in us and for us, and surrender to that. So give thought to that in this song, then we'll come back and take communion together.